What if you could say an all-in yes to yourself for 2022? What if you could commit fully to the things you said you were going to do, to the vision that you have, and to be in the room with a mentor who will hold you accountable, cast an even wider vision for you, and give you the strategy, tools, tactics, and support to ensure that these things come to fruition. Welcome to the iconic experience. Oh, just like comes out of me from the depths of my soul, this program, if I can even call it that. It's just not. That's why it's called the iconic experience. It is an experience. And it is one of the biggest gifts I've ever put out into the world. You are going to be part of a mastermind, a high level executive roundtable of perfectly welcomed in and invited in souls who will collaborate with you and network with you and stretch you and share ideas and all the goodness that comes out of a mastermind is so extraordinary. So you're going to have that every month. You're going to have group Voxer. So that mastermind stays active and you can drop in and ask questions and really share with one another and build deep, meaningful relationships. And on top of that, I thought, what could I do to expand this beyond something that I've seen out there in this world? And that is you have a full iconic experience by welcoming yourself into the rooms of everything I launch live in 2022. So you do not need to contemplate whether you should or do I want to invest. You get to sit back and receive for the entire year as the result of a single yes to yourself. One yes gets you a mastermind for the entire year full of really wicked women, group Voxer with these same women and myself, and you walk in the room for all the live coaching programs that I launch in 2022. You're just in. You're in the room. So this is really for the woman who is ready to lead, lead herself, lead her business, lead her life. And if this sounds like, ooh, it's a prayer I've been asking for, and I just want to say yes to something and just enjoy the experience versus looking constantly for the next thing, the next answer, the next coach, oh, the confusion, the chaos, the energy that is expended through that. Welcome to the iconic experience. You can come into the DMs tell me you're interested, ask the questions. I am so excited to answer them and to get to know you and see if this is a fit for you. Welcome to the best year of your life in 2022. And I'm telling you right now, the iconic experience is going to be like the rocket that's going to take you to the whole new level, the one that you've been asking for. And just to have dinner at the same time on the same night takes organizing calendars and spaces. So organization is not the problem. But if you fall in love with those traditions while you are ignoring your family and you're just going through the motions, now the traditions have become sacrosanct and they get in the way of relationships. So Jesus has this line about one tradition, Sabbath keeping. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God created the tradition as a gift for you. He didn't make you to serve the tradition. He says the religious leaders of his day were trying to get people to serve the tradition. And he cuts through that and he says, no, 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 God made the traditions to serve you. And when they stop serving you in your relationship with God, then you need to break with the tradition, try a new tradition, renew it in some way. But no one tradition is sacrosanct or else it becomes an idol. It becomes a golden calf. 
Welcome to the Becoming Iconic Podcast. I am your host, Jen Spiegel. I am a life, business, and brand stylist. And after years of helping thousands of female entrepreneurs grow successful businesses and lives, I was called to bring these delicious conversations forward for those of you who are ready to build, expand, and actually enjoy all the desires of your heart. I'm so confident that this podcast will support you as you start to elevate and pursue the highest version of yourself. Thank you for being here. Sink in and enjoy. Welcome icons to probably for me, the most special and privileged conversation I'm about to have on this podcast thus far. I'm with my spiritual mentor, Rexy Cavey, who is the senior pastor to the meeting house. That is the church that I call home. And it caught my attention 20 years ago when they say the church for people who aren't into church. (laughs) And that was pretty radical for me to hear 20 years ago. He's also the author of Reunion and the book, The End of Religion. And I have to tell you, I am on my second time through The End of Religion. And if you want to have a taste of Bruxy, his spirit his sense of humor and his deep wisdom. This is the book for you. It is absolutely incredible and pretty profound in the religious systems that I think a lot of us have been a part of or currently in. Before we hit record and before I bring Braxy in, I want to share something from my heart to open this. I feel called to, so I will. And this spiritual series came to me as a real calling and tug because I can't say that I have shown up in my business or to the outside world as authentic in my faith as I could. A lot of that has come from a very warm, compassionate place of wanting to be so inclusive, never wanting to exclude anybody or offend anybody. And so to have Brexy here and work through some things alongside of me and us feels so special because Bruxy could not be more inclusive, really a deep thought provoking leader, a spiritual leader in this world. So Bruxy, thank you from the bottom of my heart for being on this podcast. Jen, what a privilege. You have such a sweet spirit. feels like we're standing on holy ground together. I feel an honor being here with you. You have been such a part of my life, my family's life. As a matter of fact, my six-year-old put up caution tape to keep himself in the room right now because Brexy's in the house. He couldn't believe it. He thinks I'm officially famous. (laughs) (laughs) What I want to do, Brexy, if it's okay with you, is just go in the deep end and Mm. really start talking about some meaningful things, some controversial things that I know a lot of people are asking themselves and considering. And I want to just go right into religion. I feel called Mm. to do that with you Mm. and sink into the end of religion and how you feel about the word. So Mm. maybe you can give us your take, I suppose, on religion. Sure. Okay. It's a great place to start. Like so many things in the way of words, words can have flexible, elastic meaning. That's true in any language. It's certainly true in English. And the word religion is one of those words. Like the word trunk. When I say the word trunk, what comes to mind first? Is it a nose's elephant or the stem of a tree or a box that you put stuff into or the hood of a car? So many different meanings, right? And so you listen to context. And that's true about the word religion. Some people will use the word religion the way others might use the word faith or spirituality. And they're talking about a real heart connection with the divine. But in general, Jesus never uses the word religion once. He uses a different word, the word faith, which means trust. It's a deeply relational word because the spirituality of Jesus is thoroughly relational. 
God himself is not just uh, energy, but personal energy. And so the way we relate to that is through relationship. When someone is personhood, you don't use them. That's to abuse them. If you're treating them as just electricity in the wall, I go over and I flick a switch to turn on the lights. I don't ask for electricity's permission. I use it like it's just a thing. Why? Because it is just a thing. I have no relationship heart to heart with electricity. I tell it when to flow, when not to flow, or the electrician makes it possible for me to do that. I'm in charge. We can treat things a certain way that we do not treat persons. If God is personal, then the way we connect with God is not formulaic, but it is relational. Not only that, but if it's true that God is somehow pure relationship, and I say that because there's this writer in the Bible who has these three words that I think are the three most beautiful words ever penned and ever uttered in English language. And here they are. The three beautiful words are, God is love. This writer, his name is John. He writes this in 1 John chapter 4, and he says it twice, verse 8 and verse 16 of 1 John 4. God is love. And he's come to that conclusion after spending three years being personally mentored by Jesus of Nazareth, who he believes has given him a fresh view of God. He doesn't say God is just loving as an adjective. He actually defines the DNA of the divine as love. And this is a thought that was philosophically and religiously unique, unprecedented and unparalleled at the time. God is love, had not been said before, had not been fully understood or embraced before. But he says this because Jesus has convinced him of this. I think all of this beautiful truth is too big to be captured by the word religion. (laughs) Religion speaks more of the rituals and routines and the rules and the regulations and the holy spaces and holy places and the holy men and holy clothing. And there can be a place for that expression. But the ultimate reality, I think, is something that transcends the word religion. I think that's probably why Jesus never uses the word, but uses the word faith. So connecting relationship of trust. If God is love, then trusting in that love is probably a better way for capturing the spirituality that Jesus introduces us to. It's so beautiful. And yet what's coming up for me is the fact that so many people still connect God to a religious system, especially I would imagine those who have had maybe not a positive experience in a religious church or Mm. system or whatever the experience may be. So how can we then take God as love and move it out of a religious building or experience? Good, good. And as people have frustration with, maybe disconnection with particular religious systems, I think they should find a real resonance with Jesus. So if you look at the story arc of Jesus, you have someone who preaches the love of God, but who continually bumps up against the religious system of his day. Now, Jesus is Jewish. His initial followers are Jewish. His message is thoroughly rooted in the history of Judaism, but it is the Jewish religious leaders who continually misunderstand, misrepresent his spirituality Eventually, they realize he is a threat to the system. He's calling us to something that's bigger than the system. That puts us out of a job. And so he comes against the religion of his day, not because they're Jewish, but because they are religious and they're stewarding the system. And that's an applicable truth for all religions of every day, including the Christian religion. It's as though Jesus put religion out of a job. And within a few centuries, his followers said, that's an amazing message. We should build a religion out of that. And we'll call it the Christian religion. And we'll fill it with rules, regulations, rituals, routines, and we'll create a codependent relationship with the system. So you need to come to us to get God's forgiveness. You need to come to us to get God's love. 
Jesus teaches us something that transcends any one system. So I think keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, coming back to what he accomplished in the first century, and even what caused tension between him and the religious leaders of his day, what eventually led to his crucifixion, is a key transferable message for all time, for all religious encounters. It doesn't make the traditions wrong. It doesn't make the building wrong. It doesn't make the rituals wrong, but it's a codependent relationship with those things rather than with the person of God. That's when the system gets in the way rather than facilitating. Being organized, having traditions, for instance, that can help any family create beautiful memories, having certain family traditions. And and just to have dinner at the same time on the same night takes organizing calendars and spaces. So organization is not the problem. But if you fall in love with those traditions while you're ignoring your family and you're just going through the motions, now the traditions have become sacrosanct and they get in the way of relationships. So Jesus has this line about one tradition, Sabbath keeping. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man, man for the Sabbath. In other words, God created the tradition as a gift for you. He didn't make you to serve the tradition. He says the religious leaders of his day were trying to get people to serve the tradition. And he cuts through that and he says, no, no, no. God made the traditions to serve you. And when they stop serving you in your relationship with God, then you need to break with the tradition, try new tradition, renew it in some way. But no one tradition is sacrosanct or else it becomes an idol. It becomes a golden calf. So what happens to the people then who don't believe Jesus is the son of God? Well, I think they're missing out. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I think Jesus comes with this beautiful, beautiful message of God's love. He's like God's show and tell. He, He doesn't just tell, he's God's show and tell. He doesn't just preach the word of God. The New Testament calls Jesus himself the word of God. Sometimes preachers will hold up a Bible and say, this is the word of God. And and actually the Bible itself says, well, actually Jesus is the word of God. And in fact, there's this passage in John 5, where Jesus is talking with the religious leaders of his day who memorized large portions of the Bible and they studied it and meditated on it daily. And he says in John 5, you don't have the word of God in you. They would, I think, respond, what? We know the word of God better than anyone And he says, no, actually, you don't have the word of God in you because you're not using the word of God to lead you to me, the word of God in person. The word of God in print is supposed to lead us to the word of God in person. Jesus has this other line in John 12, 45, where he says this, and this encourages my heart. He says, when you look at me, you are seeing the one who sent me. So when I'm thinking, what is God? G-O-D, three letters we put together to refer to something ultimate. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I look at the world around me, I get mixed signals. I see beautiful creativity and compassion. I see horror of human perpetrating against other human, but also just nature, disease, and tsunamis. And I think, well, I get mixed signals. Is God good or is God malevolent? Or does he just not care? Then even if I just read any one particular religious holy book, depending on what page I land on, I may get a positive or negative view of God, including the Bible. But when I actually let it all lead me to Jesus, and Jesus says, well, keep your eyes on me, all right? Eyes right here, and you get to see God. I think, wow, that shows me what the creative force behind the universe is like. And I can conclude in my heart, the way the Apostle John said, God is love. Because now I've seen an example of that kind of stamped into human history. And I think anyone who doesn't think Jesus is who he said he was and doesn't lean into him will be missing out on this beautiful encouragement. Our hearts might want to conclude God is love. Most people I talk to, if I say, I think God is love, they'll say, oh, yes, I agree. But if I ask them, what do you base that on? More than just spiritual intuition, they don't know. Because if they look at nature, mixed signal, look at religion, mixed signals. But I can say to them, I think I've found in history the evidence that we can look at objectively that resonates 
with what our hearts are saying subjectively. God is love, and the two can resonate together. Only Jesus paints that picture of God for us. And so I, I think that people are in tune with their own hearts, that will lead them in a Jesusly direction. Not necessarily Christian religion per se, but there's something about Jesus. I know this is a long answer to a simple question. There's something about Jesus that has a sweet spot in almost every world religion and philosophy. He is an avatar in Hinduism. He is an enlightened one in Buddhism. He is a prophet in Islam, even Messiah in Islam. He is a reforming rabbi within many strains of Judaism. And he's the son of God in Christianity, and he's a friend of sinners for the rest of us. And he was just a wise philosopher for secularists. There's something about Jesus that has a place and a hearing in people of all world religions and no religion. And I don't think that's by accident. There is something there where God, regardless of someone's religious affiliation or lack thereof, where God is able to speak our love language, get our attention, and call us to a better way of living. And how can you not want to gravitate and run towards that? And you brought up a good point. In the world, there's just so much chaos, so much contrast. At least from my experience, it's really easy to be sucked into the negative. Why is this happening? Why are people treating people this way? And for me, in my experience, being able to put my eyes and my heart back on Jesus and go, what would he say? What would he do today? How could I edify that in my own personal life? It centers me in the exact moment. And it's just like a breath of fresh air and a peacefulness to know it's not necessarily having all the answers, but having that evidence is really profound, at least in my life. Yes. If ultimate reality is personal, then ultimate knowing is relational. And relational knowing is experiential and it includes content, but you don't have to have all the content to really know someone. So as you and I would spend more time together, we would really get to know one another. But if someone comes to me and says, oh yeah, Bruxy, you think you know Jen? Well, then I don't know what size shoe does she wear, huh? And I say, mm, I don't know. And then they say, ah, see, gotcha. And we sometimes play these gotcha games with each other's religion. It's like, do you have all the answers? Because if you don't have all the answers, then something's wrong. I think, well, people don't have all the answers about people. An expert on a topic, an expert on dog grooming, if they really have their doctorate on dog grooming, should really have answers to that if they're called to test about dog room, whatever. But none of us are experts on a person in that sense. We may know their character and their habits. So as I get to know you, I might be able to predict things about you and have real increased trust in you because I get to know your heart. But there's all kinds of details about you I may never have the answers to. And in fact, there's some things about ourselves we don't always have the answers to. We surprise ourselves. When someone asks me a question about God or about the Bible or about Jesus, if I don't know the answer, the pressure's off. I don't have to say, well, I don't know how Noah got all the animals in the ark. And was the flood global? Or is that a metaphor? Or is it a parable? Because you know, Jesus loved parables. Maybe God's telling the parable. I, I, I don't know all the answers. Here's what I do know. Jesus' heart woos me. It compels me. It makes me believe in a better God, which makes this a more loving universe and also calls me into a better way of living. And that's enough for me to keep moving forward with Jesus while we discuss all the other things we do or do not have answers for. Oh, it's so perfect. You said that. That was divine. Because one of my questions was like, did Jonah really get swallowed by a whale? Right, right. (laughs) It's so true. I was just teaching earlier today for a grade 10 religion class. And that's nice. I get to come in and represent the religion of Christianity, which is kind of fun and ironic. I mean, those are the kinds of questions that some of them had. Well, what about this Bible story? What about that Bible story? And I can say, what I do know is that God firmly planted himself in human history through the person of Jesus. That's what someone who follows Jesus believes. That's the bullseye. And then you can move out from that bullseye. And the further you move from the bullseye, the more questions you have. 
And that's okay. That's how human beings exist in this world and live life. And I don't have to have the answers for everything. I'm focused on the bullseye. I can tell you my opinion about things. But one of the things we do know is when Jesus shows up, and if he really is kind of God in a form we can understand, if I wanted to communicate with dolphins, I could try and write them a pamphlet in English, but probably wouldn't communicate with them, right? But if I had the power to actually become a dolphin and speak dolphin language and show them dolphin communication through dolphin character, that would be the best way, ultimately. And God has that power to manifest. If he can appear as a pillar of fire or as a burning bush, God can appear as a human. In fact, he made us in his image and his likeness. It's more resonant for God to become human even more than to become a burning bush or a pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, to become a human being of all of creation. That's the most natural thing for God to manifest as. For God to speak to us in this way makes great sense. It speaks our love language. When God shows up as a human being, one of the things we find out is he loves to make up stories to illustrate a point. They're called parables. And Jesus does this all the time. So that tips me off. Maybe parts of the Old Testament, maybe parts of the Bible are parables. When God shows up in human form, he just tells a lot of stories. It doesn't mean they're not true. They're telling a truth, but they are made up stories to tell the truth. It's a way of teaching. And I don't know if certain parts of the Bible is a parable or is pure history. I'm open. I'm open, but I don't have to have it all figured out in order to follow Jesus. I say, what's the meaning of the message? That's how we read our Bibles. Well, let's talk about Leviticus 19.28, because if I didn't think I could love you more, you showed up at church one day with a tattoo down your arm that could obviously, well, even in your book, you comment that someone who was an atheist was like, yeah, way to go. All right. So when I turned 50 years old, I decided I'm probably going to die soon. I just decided because I can remember growing up, 50 was like, I don't understand anything beyond 50. That's you're, you're just old. And as we're growing up developing, we often excuse make for whatever age we are. So we're like, I'm a teenager. I'm, I'm going to live forever. And then in our 20s, I'm in the prime of my life. And then we're in our 30s. It's like, I still got it. And we're in our 40s. It's 40s, a new 30. And then finally <laughs> you hit 50 and you're out of excuses. It's just, now nah, I'm dead. That's it. It's over. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to stop trying. And so I hit 50 and I said, I don't care if I live to be 100, I'm going to die soon. I want to use every opportunity I can to just have conversations about the beautiful love of Jesus and how he frees us up from the way of law to the way of love. Most religions are based on certain rules, regulations, rituals, routines, certain law keeping that gets you right with God if you continue on that path. Jesus teaches a different approach. Oh, this irreligious approach of grace. Grace is the most irreligious concept ever. That God is going to give you as a gift everything that religion has been trying but failing to accomplish. Sticking to a path to be righteous enough to get approved by God on judgment day. That's the way of religion. And grace says, I'm just going to birth you into your eternal life right now. You've already started your eternal life. Death is a small transition. Um, And so start living in light of the kind of life you want to live for eternity. Do you want to have an eternal life of love? Well, you start living that now. You've entered in. You want to live an eternal life of peace? Start living that life now, a life of peace, because you've entered in. And so he front-end loads as a gift everything that religion is trying but failing to accomplish. This frees us up from the way of law, including the laws that are recorded in the Bible of the before and after picture, which is what Jesus brings. He's the after of the before and after picture. And there is a before to the story when God parented Israel through the way of law, Torah, through the law of Moses. Jesus takes authority over that and says, not that it was a bad thing, it was a right thing for its season. Just like with little kids, you need lots of rules, especially if they're strong-willed children. You don't wrestle through with them, what's the way of love? You have to give them rules. You're not allowed to run out on the street, even if you feel like you want to. You have to hold mommy's hand when we cross this road. You just have to have some rules to keep them from killing themselves. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3, by the way, that's what humanity was like. We were so hard-hearted, 
stubborn, strong-willed, stiff-necked, and bent on killing each other, that God had to parent us through laws. They were right for the time. But then Jesus comes along and says, it's time to grow up. We're still God's kids, but we're going to be his adult children. And he's going to have a friendship with us now. So now it's not just about the rule keeping. It's about growing up. And it's called the new covenant. And Jesus said he came to bring about the new covenant. Covenant is just a word for a way of being in relationship. The old covenant, the way of law, new covenant, the way of love. I wanted to share this message with as many people as possible. And I thought, well, I'll get a tattoo. I I thought of a bunch of ideas, but one of them was I'll get a tattoo because people have conversations about tattoos. I'm not very creative. I couldn't think of a picture. So I said, I'll get a Bible verse that points to Jesus. But what one should I get? Even as I was making these plans, in the back of my head, I could remember as a kid in church hearing that tattoos are bad. And that was based on this one Bible verse, Leviticus 19.28. Leviticus 19.28, where God says, do not get a tattoo. And in the context, it's tied in with pagan religion. He wants Israel to stand out and be separate. I understand it. But just because that soundbite's in the Bible, religious people would latch onto it and say, it's wrong to get a tattoo. He actually said, do not cut yourself for the dead or get tattoo marks. I am the Lord. That's Leviticus 19.28. Even has, I am the Lord at the end. Like that packs a punch. It's like, I am Yahweh and I approve this message. It's like, you better pay attention to this command. So I thought I can't get a tattoo because it's in the Bible. Well, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible, right? Especially the part of the before picture, the before and after. And then so it dawned on me, that makes the perfect tattoo to lead to a conversation about the difference Jesus makes in the history of religion. So yes, I got one tattoo. It's Leviticus 19.28. It is worth its weight in gold as far as starting conversations and people asking questions about it. And it gives me a chance to talk about the difference Jesus makes. It's just perfect. It's just perfect. That's just how you show up, Roxy. I always say how much you provoke thought. There's not a time that I have ever, and I mean, I listen to you every week, if not multiple times a week, where you haven't connected the dots in some way. This is a big question. I asked my kids, what would you like me to ask Roxy today? And there was also some people in the community that wanted me to ask you this. And it feels like a good segue into it. Is there heaven? Is there hell? What happens? Do we go to one or the other? What is your take on that? First of all, let's start with hell, and then we'll work our way towards the positive. I'm always a give me the bad news first kind of guy. Um, What's interesting is the early church, Jesus taught about hell, but hell, Gehenna, is the word that is recorded in the New Testament. It's a Greek word. It actually is a proper noun. It refers to a place. It was the garbage dump outside of uh, Jerusalem, where a big city needs a place to dispose things, and they would burn stuff away, burn their garbage in Gehenna. The Valley of Hinnom is another a phrase that's used. And so that's what often gets translated as hell. Um, and in this valley was the garbage dump. And Jesus would say, your life can amount to that if you do not follow the way of love. You're making garbage decisions if you're hurting other people, if you're hating other people, if you're not loving God and loving your neighbor as you love yourself. He went to great lengths to model this in his life, to teach it in his parables, and to then call people to love, 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 love. He would say, otherwise you are right now turning your life into something that is useless. It's not that you're worthless. It's that the decisions you're making are lacking value. In fact, they are damaging other people and you're damaging yourself. We would warn of hell because if a life is, as we habitualize and then drill it into our souls of making damaging decisions, we are leaving in our wake. Our legacy is one of damage and there are individuals who do this. We are garbage, garbaging our life through decisions that damage. Again, it doesn't mean that I'm garbage or you're garbage, but my choices sometimes can be garbage. Jesus continually warns of this. Now, the early church, Jesus was vague enough that he's warning, you don't want to turn your life into garbage, and we should just take that warning and say, you're right, I want to live a life of love. And he say, okay, well, that's called the kingdom. It's the kingdom of heaven, but it's the kingdom of heaven come to earth. 
And that's beautiful. Choose the kingdom. And the, the idea of a kingdom is he's pushing back against the political divides that we have, like earthly kingdoms, my nation better than your nation, my race better than your race, my gender better than your gender. We all have our kind of kingdoms where I think this is my people and I belong here. He pushes back against that and says, I'm talking about a kingdom that's inclusive, that every nation and every ethnicity and all gender, you, you're all pulled into it. All socioeconomic statuses, you're now family in this kingdom and fellow citizens. So a kingdom is a culture where one will and one way holds sway, where we move in the flow of a will and a way together, and we create a culture. And this is a culture in the kingdom of heaven on earth. It's a kingdom of love. And Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is not there and then that you go to when you die. The kingdom of heaven starts here and now as you begin your eternal life now, and then you live as citizens with a different identity, a different place of belonging, with a different culture. We're in Canada. I am less a Canadian citizen than I am a citizen of heaven here and now. And it's not that I'm just waiting till I die so I can get there. No, I'm, we're, I'm bringing heaven to earth. You're bringing heaven to earth. This is our mission. And that makes us ambassadors to Canada on behalf of this foreign nation called heaven to say, you know, I'm an ambassador representing my king. And we're creating embassies. You know, the beautiful thing about an embassy is you go inside and you set foot in an area where you get to experience a little bit of that country, even if you're still in a foreign land. And people should be able to experience a little bit of heaven when they hang out with fellow Jesus followers. We create little embassies wherever two or three gather together. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus is there. So heaven is something is supposed to happen now. The Lord's Prayer, a lot of people know that. And one of the lines in the Lord's Prayer is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That kingdom prayer is for the kingdom to come here, not, and I pray that you take me to heaven when I die. Jesus doesn't teach us to pray that, but for his kingdom to come here. So that's the beauty. And hell, I think, is also happening presently as we make garbage decisions. Having said that, then, the early Christians said, it may be possible then that if we live a life of destruction, the end of our life will actually reap that fruit and we will be destroyed. We'll cease to exist. That's what the image of fire is. That's what happened in Gehenna. In the garbage heap, they burned away the fire. One of the majority views of hell in the early church was that if you choose to live that way and head down that path, you're actually diminishing your soul. You're becoming less and less alive through those choices. And then eventually, poof, you will cease to exist. There'll be nothing of you left. And that's hell. Just like physical fire burns up and destroys physical things, the spiritual fire of hell burns up and destroys the spiritual things as a result of a life of choices. That's one of the views. Another view is that hell is a purifying fire, just like a fire is often used then to burn away the impurities of a metal or of some craft that's being made that hell is a purifying fire that gets people ready for an eternity with God, uh, things that they didn't deal with in this life. But it's interesting, at some point in church history, people fell in love with the third option, which is that hell is just a place of eternal conscious torment where God will supernaturally keep you conscious so you can feel a lot of pain for all eternity. No lessons to be learned, no redemption, just punishment. And that was a minority view, one of three views in the early church And at some point it caught on. And now when people think of hell, it's the only thing people think of. And I don't think it's the most biblical view. It's not the view that Jesus talks about. He he talks about the destruction of the soul. He talks about the end, just becoming nothing. So I say to my atheist friends, for instance, who say, they say, I don't think there's any afterlife. And I say, I don't think there is either for you. (laughs) Uh, if, If that's the path you choose. That may be the path you end up with. And you and I can agree about your eternal destiny. And it's not going to be torment because you weren't in torment before you were born either. 
And if that's the path you choose, so be it. But I believe Jesus offers a kingdom that starts now that can stretch on to eternity. He just doesn't force it on us. He invites us. So do we become reborn, Rexy? Like I feel really drawn into this recently. It's like, I feel about eternal soul. So is this life something I've chosen and I'm here to learn my purpose, a lesson? Do I pass on into my next life? Do you believe in that? Yeah, well, I I think the life we start now, we will enjoy for eternity. Uh, I believe that. Reincarnation as a separate doctrine is something Jesus rejects. This is not just a current manifestation of countless lives because reincarnation often gets partnered with the doctrine of karma. And karma helps some people understand why bad things happen to people. I mean, usually if, if something bad happens to a person who's obviously a bad person, it can feel like justice. But what happens when a bad thing happens to someone who seems like a good person and you even look over their life and now you haven't really done anything to deserve this. There's a lot of suffering here. It's unjust. It doesn't seem fair. And sometimes we don't want to believe that injustice happens. We've got to keep looking for a reason. It's got to be just. This is where karma and reincarnation can come in handy because we can say, well, if you're suffering in this life for no apparent reason, it must be because of something you did in a past life. And in our clamoring for justice, I think we do damage. I have been with people who have gone through great pain, great suffering, including someone who's slowly, painfully wasting away through Luke Garrick's disease. And just bit by bit, having her life taken away from her and had so many friends coming by and saying, there's something that you've done that's led to this. If you just somehow connect with the universe better, and because your own thoughts are manifesting this, and if you would just think more positively, you're going to, I think the secret was really big back then, the law of attraction, which I understand people are wanting to lead us in a good direction through things like this, but they often don't see the dark side of the law of attraction doctrine, which then teaches if something bad is happening to you, it's because you brought it upon yourself through negative thinking. And that victim blaming, even though we're trying to work towards something encouraging and just, can leave so much damage in its wake. And I've held hands with dying people who have been victims of that mentality, and they die believing that they brought it upon themselves and they have failed. And I'm just trying to breathe life into them, say, no, I know you want to believe that the world is just, therefore suffering is something you deserve. But actually, it's a better belief to believe that the world is unjust and that sometimes we suffer even though we're innocent. And that's a horrible belief too, but that's better than believing you deserve it whenever pain comes. Want to help them say, no, sometimes actually in a fallen world like ours, sometimes wicked people prosper and innocent people suffer and we shouldn't blame the innocent people. Reincarnation and karma, they may have good intentions, but I don't know if people see some of the damage that can be caused by that belief system. Rather, Jesus says, look, we all mess up, call it sin, failure, whatever. We're all imperfect and we're all broken, but I want to gift you with God's love, gift you with grace, front end load that experience of embrace. And now you don't have to be a certain way in order to earn God's love or earn salvation or earn eternity. Let's start your eternal life now. And let's just begin to do this together in partnership. I think this gracious way of living, it leads to a more loving way of living. I I just can't think of anything that compares to it. That was really beautiful because I think I've been tripped up in that, to be Mm. honest, Rexy. And I know I'm not alone in that. I think we look for tangible things sometimes because faith is really trusting in the things unseen. And so when we Mm. hold things like a crystal or oracle cards or this idea of manifestation, I mean, this is a huge one for me. And I actually want to spend a second there because I think a lot of people are going, what? I thought we can manifest our best lives that the secret mm. was, is still in my world, very big. And mm. so how do we 
use that in a good way or can we? Yeah. This is the thing is that so many things that we encounter in life are half true. Uh, The problem with a half truth is if you think a half truth is the whole truth, then the half truth becomes a half lie. We can acknowledge the good in manifesting and saying, you know, the truth is a person who has a positive disposition and keeps moving forward is going to accomplish more, is going to bring more into being, is going to manifest more than someone who is a pessimist who has a, a dark outlook on life. So there's real truth there to encourage us. And then that truth starts to see results. And then we say, ah, you see, that reinforces the belief. So it's true. But just don't call that half truth the whole truth or it's a half lie. Because there are also people who are very positive and who get sick and who die early. They didn't bring upon themselves. It didn't work for them. It is just that sometimes suffering is random and sometimes the innocent suffer. And so we have to watch out for the flip side of some of these beliefs that when they become religious, when they become legalistic, when we treat it like law, the law of the universe works this way. Really, really, uh, you need to live in my world and hang out with suffering people for a while. If you treat it like law, I think you have to live in a North American prosperous bubble in order to convince yourself of that. And when you move out into the hurting spaces, nooks and crannies of the world, that worldview falls apart pretty quickly, unless you want to believe that everybody deserves it. And I think that terrible place for our souls to go. It sure is. So the question that it's leading me into, I feel like I'm in the deepest, deepest end with you. This is something I am really being challenged with, and it's the ego versus God. So when I'm listening, when I want to hear God, when I want to be guided, when I'm praying and saying, what's my next step? Is this correct? Am I edifying you in my life? I have a really difficult time discerning sometimes whether this is my ego. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jen, you're doing Mm -hmm. a great thing. Or is it God nudging me along saying, yeah, Jen, you're doing a great thing. How do you discern between those two things? Uh, Yeah, that's a terrific question. Let me take a slightly different approach and maybe encourage you to say that God's goal for us is that our egos are so influenced by Jesus that in the end, it won't matter the answer to that question. Say, hmm, is this God guiding me or is this my own mind? And God would say, I hope, my hope for you, Jen, is that it is your own mind and that your own mind is really in sync with my mind and your heart is walking with my heart. His goal is not to have pets, but to have people. He doesn't just want obedient pets. I mean, he had a world, according to the story in Genesis, he has a world populated with animals. God said, I want more than a petting zoo. I want persons made in my image, in my likeness. Genesis 1, right? The first chapter of the Bible says, you know, he's made human beings in his own image, in his own likeness. Ancient creation myths from the Babylonian creation stories, Egyptian creation stories, never said that people were made in the image of God. Only kings or pharaohs were said to be made in the image of God, but not common people, because that would destroy their economy based on slavery. You know, we look at the pyramids and say, what a great accomplishment, but those existed because of slavery. Everything grand that we say is a wonder of the world in the ancient cultures exists because of slavery. You had to believe that there were some people who are connected with God, and there are others who are not fully human. And so the idea of God creating human beings all in his image and his likeness is not universal part of ancient religions. Judaism begins with this amazing assertion. Even in the stories that says God created humans, usually God would create them to be slaves, not make them in his image, and they were to bring God or the God's food as part of their sacrifices. Feed me. And in Genesis, God makes us as his friends, as his image bearers, and he brings us food. He says, I'm going to put you in a garden. I want to give you trees to eat. It turns the whole narrative on its head and infuses every human being with infinite worth and value as an image bearer 
of the divine. Sometimes I think when we trip ourselves up with, is this me or is this God? I think as an image bearer of God, you should just know that he hopes over time it will be indistinguishable and that that will be a good thing. Mm. (laughs) And in the meantime, we can train ourselves in that. We can partner in two ways. God gives us the Holy Spirit on the inside so we can listen to the voice of the Spirit. But we might say, well, I don't even know how to recognize that. Well, he gives us the life of Jesus. Subjectively, we have the Spirit. Objectively, we have the life of Jesus, and the two can resonate with one another. We can study the life of Jesus. We can see examples in how he lived and things he taught. And then we can compare that to the nudges we feel inside. And now we're training ourselves to recognize the voice of the Spirit. And then the voice of the Spirit is conforming our hearts so that eventually our voice, the Spirit's voice, the voice of Jesus, the example of Jesus, the example of Bruxy, they do all start to blend together and look alike, hopefully. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for that. That actually gave me a lot of assurance because that's something I get tripped up on. I I have to constantly keep second guessing myself. Is this correct? Is this correct? But if I'm living my life according to the teachings of Jesus and his example, I can be assured in that, which leads me to a couple more questions. There's something that's coming up that's extension of this. Is this martyrism versus wanting more in Mm. business, especially a lot Mm. of entrepreneurs listening to this podcast, Abraxian, this feeling of money is evil, wanting more is evil, bringing ourselves back into martyrism of not wanting to take and be in humility. And this is also a contrast that definitely plays a role in my life. Can you help us as entrepreneurs live our businesses through the teachings of Jesus? Oh, beautiful. Yeah. I love the sincerity, honesty, and rubber meets the road a question like this. Money can empower us. Money is power. And then people can use that power to abuse or to bless as someone honors God, I would say, and honors God's image in us by doing well with whatever we put our hand to. I think that's a beautiful thing. That's us being the image bearers of God that we are called to be. We do it well. If we feel that the thing we're doing is questionable, stop doing it. You're fashioning your soul with every choice you make. Every micro decision you make is shaping. It's soul shaping. And if you find that you're diminishing your soul, because of the kind of business you're in, or because of the product that you are saying you believe in that you don't believe in, or if your ethics, if it's leading you in just incremental ways down a questionable path, yeah, make the courageous decision and say no, because it's not worth your soul. Um, But if you can, with integrity, whether sell good product, run good business, and do so in a way that empowers you and raw power, in some sense, neither good nor bad, it depends on whether you partner that power with love. If you partner power with love, then you become this creative force for good. And if you partner just power with more power, it becomes horrific. And that's not a one-time decision. I'm going to run my business ethically, and now I move forward. It's a daily decision where we assess in the last 24 hours, have I started to just veer this way or that way in the decisions I make? It will mean that sometimes a Jesus-following business person will sacrifice profit for ethics. And that's counterintuitive to the world of business because business is like a religion. It doesn't have an inherited ethic of love. It has an inherited ethic of profit. That's how capitalism works. And we don't blame it for that. We just say that's what business does. But people are more than business people. They're people. My business needs to fit into the holistic view of who I am. And if I can bring my whole heart to it, I can redeem rather than reject the idea of profit and the idea of business and capitalism. I can redeem rather than reject a hard work and success. I have to bring my whole person into that and make business one component rather than the be all end all. Check daily and bring love to bear. I love that you said not at the expense of your soul. And I do Mm. believe when we're tuned in and plugged in, we have this intuitive guidance, like it's in our tummies. 
it doesn't sit well. And that's when I have to stop and assess and decide for myself, is this a correct decision for not only me, but the world as a whole, or am I stepping out of my integrity in the moment? And I think that's a really important question for business people to ask themselves frequently. Where can people find you? Because I know for sure you can teach and facilitate. Where can people find you or would you like them to go? Great. Okay. Well, the first thing is with a name like Bruxy Cavey, I've (laughs) got to be easy to find on social media. (laughs) I'm on most platforms and I should be easy to find. And I should say specifically, if I've provoked questions, I love to turn monologue into dialogue and then dialogue into greater dialogue. And so if I've provoked questions and someone is wondering, should I just send Bruxy a question? The answer is always yes. I live for this stuff. Regardless of where someone is, if you find me and send me a question, I would love to respond. I figure if I stir the pot, I should stick around and clean up the mess. I have a website. Again, it's just my name. When you have a weird name, you might as well use it. So that's Bruxy.com or our church, the weekly teachings of our church are at themeetinghouse.com. There's years worth of teachings there. I've written two books, so you can put my name into amazon.com or wherever you buy books. And if you prefer listening or reading, you've got those options. So there's a lot of options for people if they want to dig deeper into this view of of spirituality. Thank you, Bruxy, because you are a profound thought leader. I mean, Bruxy's being very humble friends. He has done work all over the world and is really elevating other spiritual leaders. I mean, I just see you as this guide right now. And I'm so appreciative to be in your space and to learn from you. The Meeting House is such a beautiful part of my week, of my family's week, Mm -hmm. the music, the teachings. I remember when I first went to the Meeting House and you had controversial quotes come up on the big Mm -hmm. screens that were so different from what I was accustomed to in the church that I was raised in. And what I appreciate about that, Bruxy, and the, the home churches, the, the culture and community that you're building and fostering, it's so beautiful. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Iconic was a funny word for me to use for this podcast, because as someone with faith, I felt, oh, am I stepping up and being boastful? Mm-hmm. What does iconic mean? But at the same time, I loved how it pushed me and how it's unfolded for me. So I ask everybody how they're going to be iconic today. And I'd love to hear, Bruxy, how you're going to be iconic. Oh, that's beautiful. And it's certainly an icon is a representative of. It's a limited version of something infinite. Jesus, I think, is God's limited edition. But the beautiful thing is that we're called to be God's limited editions as well. We are icons of the divine. And Jesus was here physically, then left But then the New Testament church started to call themselves the body of Christ, that we're still the physical hereness of Jesus. And he's spiritually present now, but he's still physically present through us. So I think being an image bearer is true for our humanity, but especially as someone who follows Jesus, Jesus says, well, you're my body, you're my hands and feet, and I want to continue to change the world through you. So for me, my purpose in life, remember this idea of kingdom, that I'm going to be in flow with the will and the way of God. Every day I wake up saying, God, how can I experience and extend your kingdom today? How can I experience and extend your kingdom today? I want to fully experience your presence, experience love, but I also want to extend it. And in that sense, you know, kingdoms go to war to conquer land. This kingdom goes to war, but people are never the enemy. You know, the ideas that separate us are the enemy, but it's like a spiritual war. And I want to conquer land too, but the land that this kingdom conquers is the distance between us that separates us. We, we conquer that land. We overcome it. 
And that's the war we fight for. So I want to be iconic, being an image bearer of God and a representative of Jesus by experiencing and extending his kingdom and conquering the lands that divide groups of people and individuals through his grace, forgiveness, reconciliation. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Bruxy. You are a gift. Friends, run over, grab his books. I'm immersed in the end of a religion for the second time. And like I say, it's just such a beautiful, you can hear you speak as you read the words. It's such a great reflection of you. And Bruxy, I appreciate how you show up in this world and the example you are showing myself, my children, my extended family from the bottom of my heart. I want to thank you. It's a real honor to call you my sister. And I think you have a good thing going on here. So thanks for adopting me into your family. I hope this isn't our last time hanging out together. I hope not too. Thanks, Bruxy. Bless you. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you know how deeply grateful I am for the time and space you give to the Becoming Iconic podcast. It is an honor and a privilege to show up here twice a week and pour into you. And thank you for those five-star reviews that you've been giving and those beautiful compliments. It means so much. And the time you spend to do that is just the most beautiful way to give back. The other thing I want to challenge us to as a community is to share more. It's so simple to copy this link into a text to a friend who you think would benefit from what you just listened to or share it into your stories. Make sure to tag me, by the way, because I love resharing and allowing your network to maybe discover something that they wouldn't have if it weren't for you. And just a gentle reminder that jenspiegel.com, that website was designed for you, for you in mind and what you need in your life and business, the blog, the resources, the different ways of working together, they all sit there and they're available to you. So I challenge you to go over there, make it a habit of checking out what's new and exciting. At the end of the day, I just want you to know, I love this community. I appreciate being able to show up for you and I just want you to make it a great day.